God is with us. Amen. That's the most important. I had a, saw a quote this week that said, if there's no fire in the sermon, then throw the sermon in the fire. And Anne said, you better throw it in the fire then, better you? So I think, I think that was a positive affirmation. I'm pretty sure it was. So it was, uh, it's good. It's good. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I, there's something special about Pentecost Sunday. Something special about it. It's, it's, it really was the birth of the Christian church in so many, many, many ways. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 it says, But I promise you this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be seized with power. You will be my messengers to Jerusalem, that's Kerang, and throughout Judea, the distant provinces, even to the uttermost places of the earth. What an incredible promise that uh, Jesus had given uh, to his disciples. And I'm, I must admit, over these last uh, few weeks, as I've been thinking towards what does it mean to come to this time of, of Pentecost, I've been trying to visualize and understand the, the events that we now understand as Pentecost and what led up to that. You see, these disciples had walked with Jesus at least over the last three and a half years. They'd witnessed Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine. I love what Jesus' mother said to the servants. Whatever he says, just do it. Sounds like a bit of a Nike ad, doesn't it? Just do it. And you can understand the mother saying, look, whatever he says, just do it. Because she understood that this man that she had born was special. He was from God. And so they did. They filled the the jars full of water. Now, I wonder if you can visualize the servant, the servant who had to take this cup, if you like, of water to the the person who was uh, leading the the celebrations of of the wedding. Because if you understand, the cup bearer, if that was still water, he would either be put to death or he would be fired from his job. Something would go wrong for him. And so you kind of understand the nervousness of this servant as he approached uh, the, uh, the person to, uh, to, to drink it, whether it would be wine. Because it turned out, as the, uh, the master of ceremony says, this is the best wine. Normally they use the best wine at the start and they use the old stuff at the end because they're all so tipsy that they don't understand whether it's good or bad. Nobody in the Baptist church has ever been under that influence, have they? Of course, you wouldn't know that. But that's what, what happened. And you go back to Nehemiah and he was the cupbearer and, and it was a, an awesome position to be in. But the, the, the servants who... who who, who were around him were amazed at this event of turning water into wine. The disciples had also witnessed the, the absolute feeding of the 5,000. You know, that, that they gathered together, this whole crowd, that, it talks about 5,000 men. Normally if there's men around, there's women around. Normally if there's women around, there's children around. So there could have been 20,000 people there gathered together hungry as anything, but hungry to hear what Jesus was saying. And Jesus simply uh, said, well, go and have a look, ask the crowd what they've got. And they come back with these two little fishes and five loaves, two sardines in some ways. That's about all it was just to put in the roll. 
You know, mum had prepared it for him. And Jesus simply prayed and the 5,000 were not only fed, but they gathered five basket loads of fragments at the end. Can you imagine that? Here's these five little loaves, two little small fish, and they gathered up five basketfuls of, um, of fragments at the end. Incredible miracle. And they saw all this. They saw blind Bartimaeus being, being healed of his blindness. They witnessed to Jesus walking on the water and Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water as well. They witnessed all this. And unfortunately for Peter, he looked at the circumstances rather than looking at Jesus. You know, often that's a part of our problem. We get excited about Jesus. We make our commitment to Jesus. As we heard last week, all to Jesus, I surrender. And we go out of here going, wow, that's what I want to do. And then we look at the circumstances around us and the the stuff that we get involved in from week to week and we take our eyes off Jesus and we put them on the circumstances and we begin to sink just like Peter did. Often that's our problem. Often we think that our circumstances are, are greater than the resources that are available to us through Jesus. Through the Father. In Matthew 6 31 to 34, it says, So then, forsake your worries. Why would you say, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or, or what will we wear? For that is what the unbelievers chase after. Doesn't your heavenly Father already know the things that your body requires? So, above all, constantly seek God's kingdom and his righteousness then all these other less important things will be given to you in abundance in abundance refuse to worry about tomorrow but deal with each challenge that comes your way one day at a time tomorrow will take care of yourself worry is simply the negative side of your imagination how many times have you stayed awake at night worrying Worrying about something or a situation that you think is going to happen the next day. The interesting part is that when you get up the next day, it's not as what you thought. Because your imagination runs right with you and it becomes this huge big problem when it's not really that. But that's how imagination works. And I'm totally sure that these 12 disciples must have many, many sleepless nights worrying about what on earth was Jesus going to say next? What was he going to do next? And he thinks thinks that's about me. What's he going to say next? (laughs) Be aware, Anne, I'm changing. (laughs) Tomorrow. (laughs) Persecution was rising more about when, as Jesus spoke about things as he faced the Pharisees, you know, the disciples are going, oh, no. The more miracles that he performed, the more the crowd was warming towards him. Then comes the, the big one. And in John 2 and verse 18 to 22, it's recorded as the Pharisees were talking about Jesus, about tearing down the temple and building it within three days. You remember that. Let me just read it. They asked, what credentials can you present to justify this? And Jesus answered, tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll put it back together. They were indignant. 
It took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to build, rebuild it in three days? But Jesus was talking about the body, his temple. That's what he was talking about. But see, these Pharisees, and I want to, I want to say this very clearly, sometimes we can have all the biblical knowledge. Like the Pharisees, they had all the biblical knowledge, but they still didn't understand. You see, I think you said it really well. We've got to get it from here to here. We can have all the knowledge in the world, but if I haven't got this heart understanding of who Jesus is, then we miss it. We miss it. And again, the, 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 the disciples watched all this taking place. What's he talking about now? What's he doing? They then saw Jesus being dragged before Pilate for blasphemy, accused of blasphemy by the Jews. They saw as Jesus carried his own cross down the, down the streets of Jerusalem out into Mount Calvary. They saw this all taking place. He was unrecognisable as he walked carrying his cross, his own cross. They were witnesses to this. They watched as the nails were punched into his hands and into his feet. They saw that. And they saw that the, the soldiers still weren't satisfied. Or probably the Jews weren't satisfied and said to the soldiers, make sure he's dead. And so they stuck this spear in his side. And as the Bible said, blood started to pour out. They witnessed Jesus hanging on that cross and as he yelled out those, those words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Gee, that's a hard one, isn't it? Have you ever been in a situation where somebody doesn't like you, where somebody actually hates you, where somebody's out to get you? to pull you down, to nail you to the cross, as it were. See, it's hard to forgive. You know, some people, oh, it's easy to say, I forgive you. It's not that easy. See, again, it's up here. We've got to sink it down into our spirit and say, Lord, I don't know how to do this, but I, I want to do it. I want to forgive. And, and Jesus had that. He was able to say, Lord, just, Father, forgive them. They don't know. They witnessed Jesus being placed in a tomb. They witnessed as the stone was rolled across that tomb so that he couldn't get out. And they thought it's finished. But then came that unbelievable news. He's alive! He's alive! Can you imagine what they felt about that? Jesus then appears to them coming through a locked door. <laughs> Can you imagine that? They're sitting and standing in the room and all of a sudden Jesus appears. They didn't hear the door open. They didn't hear the bolt unlock. He just appeared. Remember Thomas, the doubter? Unless I see, I will not believe. <laughs> I've had a bit of a thought about this. Thomas was one of those characters often, I believe, misjudged for his apparent unbelief. I want to suggest that he is worthy of our admiration. I want you to think about that. He had seen and, and felt the fear, doubt, depression that overwhelmed him as what it would have done with the other disciples. 
in the wake of Jesus' crucifixion and, and his burial. They felt that in their heart and their spirit. This man that they'd placed all their faith in was now dead. And now they're saying he's alive? You know, when he was confronted with the assertion that Jesus had risen and appeared to, to his companions, he did what most intelligent people would do. He asked them if they had let their imaginations run away with them. You know, sometimes when we're in grief, that can happen. I've been around enough grief with people in my life and I've visited people in my life who have gone through grief and are still making the table as if their partner was still there after six months because their imagination has said they're coming back, they're still here. And so this was going on for the disciples. Maybe he concluded that out of, of desperation and, and even hope, the other disciples had become delusionary. He was not going to let himself be drawn into, into that type of imagination, that type of direction. But he has over the centuries been punished for his honesty. Incredible, isn't it? Because he insisted on being given hard evidence. He found himself alienated from friends, cut off from the group in which he thought that he belonged to. They cut him off. Oh, church, we too need to be honest about how we feel, how we feel. You know, men, we find that hard, don't we? That's for women. They feel. But you know something? We feel as well. Well, I think you do. I know I do now. But I find it difficult sometimes to express my feelings. And I'll say, how are you? Fine. How are you really? I think I'm fine. Really, how are you? I'm lousy. It takes time for men to express what they're really feeling because deep down... Most men have got stuff that's going on that they want to express it. One of the things that I've come to understand, even particularly in this past week as I've been visiting, is that sometimes men are brought out, they've come into this wonderful experience of Jesus out of, out of a, a lost eternity and going to the pub each night and we'd pull them out of the pub and say, you can't go there anymore because that's, that's sinful and all those types of things. But that's where they unloaded. That's where their fellowship was. And the church, we've lost it because we we've, we've haven't given anything that substitutes that. And that's why we need men's groups that can get together and unload some of their feelings, unload some of the anger, some of the depression that men go through. The disciples were witnessing to this. Thomas was a witness to that. And during Jesus' long farewell speech recorded in John 14, Thomas was bold enough to interrupt, asking him, speak plainly, bring it down to our understanding, make it to our level. Instead of talking in all types of poetic or flowery language, Thomas found baffling. 
And there are sometimes in churches we need to bring our understanding down a little bit so that everybody can understand. And Jesus was saying, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. Where I am, there you may be also, and you know the place where I'm going. This was clearly too much for Thomas. And he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how on earth are we supposed to know the way? Hmm. I love Jesus' answer. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. You know, I've been around long enough to hear people say, ah, no, there's, there's other ways. No, there's not. I'm sorry, but there's not. Jesus said, I am the way. Not through giving, not through attending church, not being, through it being a goody-goody, not by just volunteering wherever. Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life. The irony of the story is that from the mouth of a man who has subsequently been labelled as Doubting Thomas came out with one of the great expressions of faith, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. I love the way that Jesus is inclusive. He loves doubters. He loves us as doubters. He loves unforgiving people, would you believe? He loves gay homosexual people. He loves Pharisees. He loves people of the law. He loves them. And he loves sinners just like you and me. Now Jesus goes on to tell them after his pronouncement that he's about to leave them. Have you ever been in this situation where someone that you love comes and says, I'm leaving? I'm sure some of you have, if not all of you. For some, it's been a child who who wants to leave home earlier because of some argument. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Your parents don't know what you're talking about. It may have been a wife or a husband who leaves a note and says, I no longer want to be in this marriage and the other partner says, I didn't even know that there was a problem and they leave. In the many funerals that I have conducted, I've seen the grief that comes upon people at the sudden death of a loved one. And this is what the disciples were going through when Jesus announces that of his coming departure. His parting words were firstly, if I don't go back to my father, then the comforter, the Holy Spirit, cannot come. That's pretty simple, isn't it? If I don't go back, guys, I can't send the comforter to you. And secondly, he said, Jesus said to wait for him in Jerusalem for the promise of the father. But I promise you this, the Holy Spirit will Come upon you, and you will be seized with power. You will be my messengers in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, the distant provinces, even to the remotest places of the earth. 
When Jesus makes a promise, he always fulfills it. Let me read Acts 2, 1 to 4. On the day of Pentecost was, was being fulfilled, all the disciples were gathered in one place. Suddenly they heard the sound of a violent blast of wind rushing into the house from out of the heavenly realm. The roar of the wind was so overpowering, it was all anyone could bear. I want you to put yourself into this. Then all at once, a pillar of fire appeared before their eyes. It separated into tongues of fire that engulfed each one of them. They were all filled and equipped with the Holy Spirit and were inspired to speak in tongues, empowered by the Spirit to speak in languages that they had never learned. Interesting, isn't it? We chucked that out. There's a story that goes around that I just read this past week that in Yosemite National Park in America, where once a year they would all gather and uh, over the period of the 12 months, uh, all the trees were up on the, the mountainous area and there was a cliff. And on this mountain area where the trees would fall and the branches would fall, they would gather them up over the 12 months. Then in a given time, they would pour kerosene over all the, the branches and the leaves, which most of them were, were pretty dead by that time. And they would light it. And then the bulldozers would come in and push those, uh, those branches and things over the side of the cliff. But before that, all the people would gather below, all the people around the township and those who had come from even overseas apparently would come and gather on this particular day to safe distance obviously. And, and at a given moment, they were told to yell out, let the fire fall. Let the fire fall. It was then the bulldozer would push it over the edge and people would see the fire falling. What a great spectacle that must have been, the fire just falling down the cliff face. There was a man who was there on this particular occasion, wanted to come back and witness this again. And so several years later, he came back to witness it. But when he got there, nothing was happening. So he went to the park ranger and he said, uh, I was here several years ago and uh, this fire would, would fall from the cliff face. What, what, why, why isn't it happening today? The answer came back, I'm sorry, sir. We don't do that anymore. The fire doesn't fall anymore. How many churches over the centuries who have experienced the fire falling on them. The Spirit of God coming upon a congregation. How many churches have seen that in the midst and now saying, uh, we, don't, we don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. I don't know about you, but I'm hungry to see the fire fall again and again. Even here at KBC, I don't care how conservative we are. I want to see the fire fall. In Matthew 25, verse 8, the story is recorded of the, of the ten virgins. Ten of them who were foolish and ten who were wise. 
And ten of them start to run out of oil. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. It's time to fill up with more oil. It's time for us, for you, me, to fill our lamps again. Because I want to tell you, the bridegroom is coming. The bridegroom is coming. What were some of the results of the fire falling at Pentecost? They all came flooding out of the upper room, speaking in languages that they did not even have learnt. And if you go through that chapter, you'll find the different languages that they said, but I can, I can understand, but I can understand too. That's God. That's how the Spirit works. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Are not all these Galileans? And how is it that we can all understand them? Some said they were amazed and perplexed. But there's always the others who say, Ah, I think they're too drunk. They're drunk with wine. Well, they actually were. The new wine. The new wine of God's Spirit. Interesting, as hard as it was for many to understand, 3,000 people were converted that day. Isn't it amazing? How many converts have we seen in the last five years, in the last one year? They saw 3,000, just like that, because they saw the power of the Spirit of God working in somebody's life. In 1940, and I'll draw this to a close, in 1940, Professor Edwin Orr, some of you will know him, a great scholar of Wheaton University, led a group of theological students to England where they visited sites of great revivals. And one location was Epworth Rectory, part-time home of John Wesley, a famous reformer who led a spiritual renewal movement back in the, in the 1700s. As a man of prayer, Wesley interceded for revival to sweep through England and to spread to America as well. And Dr. Orr pointed out two worn patches in the bedroom on the carpet of John Wesley's bedroom where this great reformer knelt for hours in prayer each day, crying out for revival, crying out for revival. And as the tour concluded, the students were loaded back into the bus and they took their count and there was one missing. And so Dr. Orr noticed who was missing and he returned to the house and eventually located the lost student in John Wesley's bedroom, kneeling on the worn impressions where Wesley had fervently prayed for revival. And the student was repeating and repeating and repeating. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. And would you do it with me? But do it again. And placing his hand on this young man's shoulder, Dr. Orr said, son, it's time to leave. Everybody's on the bus. And that student slowly arose and they walked back to the bus. That man's name was Billy Graham. God did it again. 
God did it again through Billy. Why? Because Billy Graham was passionate to see God bring revival in his day. Habakkuk 3.2 said, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. That's what Habakkuk was saying. Billy Graham was crying, do it again, Lord, let the fire fall. Do it again. Deep inside, doesn't your heart resonate with the same longing? Surely, in these days in which we're living, we need to have that longing in our heart, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of just reading about revivals. I want to see God move powerfully, supernaturally, in a way that we've never seen before, in a way that probably was different to the past as well. Our world is upside down, not because of COVID or racial tension and floods and droughts and wars in the Middle East, we face incredible personal situations as well. But the world is upside down. And only a move of God can save us. But when we do cry out, God hears us. God hears us. But we need to cry out. We need to cry out. What would happen if we were bold enough to ask God, to do it again here. I wonder whether you would consider making a deal with me. How about every day? I've been doing this for the past week, so I've... But every day we kneel in prayer as Billy Graham did. And as John Wesley did, and as Habakkuk did, let's cry out from our hearts, God, do it again. Lord, do it again. Let the fire fall. Let the river flow, Lord. Then watch God move. I wonder whether you take up the challenge. I wonder whether you would join me for the next two weeks, just two weeks. I know some churches go for 40 days in prayer and fasting. But I'm asking that we would just for two weeks, and maybe those who are on live stream as well, you might like to take up the challenge. And just for a few moments, get on your knees. If you can't get on your knees, just sit on your, the couch or your bed or whatever. I don't mind kneeling, it's getting up's my problem. But just getting down on your knees for just a few moments, not a long prayer, but just, Lord, would you do it again? Out in the foyer, you'll see a little slip like that. Lord, do it again. Let the fire fall. I'm going to ask you that you take one. If you're serious about wanting to see an impact in this, in this township, if you're interested in seeing God move in a powerful way in this township, take one. What you do is up to you. If you want to screw it up when you get out the door, that's fine. I won't see that. 
But if, you, if we're serious about seeing the kingdom of God impacted, then I'm going to ask you for the next two weeks just to take it, place it somewhere where you pray, read your Bible. When you open up, use it as a bookmark or something like that. And just say, Lord, do it again. Do it again, Lord. Let the fire fall, but let it fall on me. Let's pray. Father, our God, we thank you for the fact that not only did you come again to the cross, out of the tomb, but you allowed your spirit to come and that you would bring the power of God into our lives to deal with situations to be witnesses for you here in Kareem and to the outermost parts of the earth. Lord, would you do it again? Lord, I'm asking, do it again. Do it again. Do it again, Lord. Let the fire fall. Let the river start to flow. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.